Good morning, it's Wednesday, the 14th of October, and this is Music 316. We were listening to some Buddhist music from China. This is music performed by a group of nuns and monks, that is, female communities and male communities of religious professionals who live in segregated celibate communities, celibate meaning that they don't marry or have sexual relations, but uh, in some such communities, men and women will come together for a daily worship ceremony, and that's what we're hearing in example number two from China, a group of relig religious professional women, religious professional men, led by a woman as the leader of the ceremony. We heard the group of women and men. They're singing the end of a song here, accompanied by bells and gongs, drums and wooden concussion sticks. There's the big bell to end the song. And now they start this song. Da, 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 high, medium, medium, low, high, medium, low, medium, high, medium, low, medium, high, medium, low, medium, high, medium, low, medium. So just three notes, one high, one in the middle, and one low. Now this sounds very simple, but it represents a musical revolution in Chinese music. Because Chinese music, before Buddhism came, had melodies that usually had five notes, or six, or seven, or more. Wine Madness has nine different notes. That, peop that people play on the instrument. To cut back from that many notes to just three is an act of musical streamlining, an act of musical discipline. And I'm gonna go back here a second to the beginning. Even the beginning of this example. There's more than three notes there. And then they cut back to this restricted three-note scale. And this is an act of musical discipline. It's an act of consciously focusing your mind on getting by with as little as possible. This is a very common Buddhist strategy and a very common Buddhist aesthetic to sometimes restrict yourself to consuming as few resources as possible, whether material resources or musical resources, and to focus in on the smallest number that you need to do the job that you're trying to do. It's eliminating possible distractions and getting your mind into a very precise focus on what you're doing. 
Now in this case, in this part of the performance, the singers are chanting the names of the medicine Buddha. Buddha is an enlightened being. It's actually a description rather than a name because Buddhism was started by the person we call the historical Buddha, whose name was Shakyamuni. But oops, that's a description too. That means the Muni or sage, the wise man of the Shakya family. The Shakya family were a family of noblemen, of kings and queens, who lived in what today is Nepal around the um, 6th century AD. And the ruling king and queen of the Shakyas at that time had a son that they named Gautama. And Gautama was the crown prince, he was supposed to inherit the kingdom, but he had several experiences in his youth that led him to pursue a religious life rather than a, the life of a king or a nobleman. And so he started a religious community and members of the religious community called him the Buddha or the enlightened one because he had a religious experience, a kind of a vision, where even when he was meditating, he discovered what he explained as the causes of human suffering and the suffering of all sentient beings, including animals, other beings who think and feel, besides humans, and the way to escape the causes of suffering. And so he went around preaching this discovery of his and became known to his community as the enlightened one or Buddha. And so people called the community Buddhists. And that community started um, in either the 6th century or the 5th century AD. And there's still dispute about that because the Indian history books are not as precise as the ones in some other parts of Asia. And so you can say roughly around 500 BC. Did I say AD over here? Yes, I did. Sorry about that. Um, this is 500 BC, roughly, uh, that he started the Buddhist religious community and started to gather followers. And that religious community slowly spread from Nepal and North India through other parts of Asia, through Southeast Asia, Inner Asia, and up around the Silk Road and through the shipping lanes of, of, of Southeast Asia, and finally arrived in China um, in the late centuries AC and early centuries AD, BC and AD. So, I'm having trouble, trouble with those initials today. This was the historical Buddha, Gautama Shakyamuni Buddha, the, enli the enlightened one, about 500, 500 AD. But Buddhists quickly 
started to develop a practice of meditation and worship of other Buddhas, other enlightened ones, who were believed to have appeared in the past before Gautama Buddha, and depending on the, on the community of Buddhists that were doing these meditations and worship, some of them also believed that there were many other enlightened Buddhas existing in the present, in the here and now, um, that we just don't know about because they're not traveling around publicly and preaching like Gautama Buddha did. And in some um, varieties of Buddhism, that belief developed into a belief in hundreds or even th thousands of separate Buddhas, each of them with a distinct history, biography, each with a distinct personality, and each with a different job description, depending on what exactly they chose to follow in their pursuit of enlightenment and in their pursuit of helping sentient beings. So the different Buddhas that were followed by the community of Buddhists that became known as Mahayana, there were two major Buddhist communities that developed in the, the last 500 years BC from about, oh, 300 BC to around 0 AD. The Buddhist community branched into two main branches, Theravada and Mahayana. The Theravada community followed a more conservative interpretation and said that well, yes, there were more than one Buddha, but there were only six other Buddhas besides Sakyamuni, six Buddhas. Mahayana said, no, there were, there were and are as many Buddhas, as many enlightened beings, as there, as there is a need for them to help suffering beings. And there are a lot of suffering beings around, so there are a lot of Buddhas. So Mahayana projected a group of hundreds to thousands of Buddhas, each with their separate job descriptions, each with their special ways of helping sentient beings. Well, what are, what are some of those different ways? Well, uh, the main things that, Buddh that Buddhas or enlightened beings specialize in are wisdom and compassion. So there are Buddhas of wisdom and Buddhas of compassion. There are Buddhas who specialize in saving from death. By the way, there are male Buddhas and female Buddhas in Mahayana, so you often have a male Buddha that specializes in something and a female counterpart who specializes in the same thing. So there are Buddhas who save you from death. There are Buddhas who save you from danger. There are Buddhas who save you from uh, selfishness. There are Buddhas who save you from all kinds of traps and pitfalls that can lead you into suffering in life. And one of the obvious ways that people and animals, for that matter, suffer in life is through sickness. 
And so one of the specialized Buddhas of Mahayana is the medicine Buddha, the one who helps cure sickness. And the medicine Buddha does not exist in the physical world here. So how does he help cure sickness? By showing us that one, sickness has a cause, and that two, to be cured from sickness, you have to follow a path of treatment. You have to seek the causes of your sickness and do something to overcome the causes. Very often, those causes are physical, and so you have to practice a skill, or somebody has to practice a skill in identifying medicines and making medicines out of, out, out of plants and chemical materials that you can use to treat people for their sickness. And the person who does that is a doctor. And patients have to come to the doctor to get diagnosed. They have to seek treatment. And when their sickness is diagnosed and the doctor gives medicine, they have to take the medicine in order to get well. Well, the medicine Buddha represents the perfect doctor. The medicine Buddha represents a doctor who knows everything and can cure any disease. And obviously, there isn't a doctor like that among the imperfect humans who fill up uh, university hospital or group health or Swedish or any uh, local medical institution. Some of them are really good, but you could always have something better. So the Medicine Buddha exists in our minds to make us want a perfect doctor, to search for and try to, um, to f try to find and, and um, uh, get help from the best doctors possible, and maybe to stimulate some of us to train ourselves as doctors and to go to medical school and train with the best doctors and become even a better doctor than the best one we can find at the local hospital. That's the purpose of the Medicine Buddha. And so it's very important for people to meditate on the Medicine Buddha because we want doctors, we want the best possible medicine. And so it's important to focus our minds and imagine what that, what that would be and see what we could do to encourage the development of better medicine and better doctors. So here are these monks and nuns then singing the name of the Medicine Buddha. And the name of the Medicine Buddha, his name is Vaishajya Guru. You've all heard the word guru. It means teacher in Sanskrit. Vaishajya is medicine medicine teacher. So that is what the nuns are singing, and the monks, in this example. And they're singing it. This is a Sanskrit name. They're singing it, but they're singing it with a little bit of a change to give it more of a Chinese pronunciation. So in this adapted form of Sanskrit, Vaishajya Guru becomes Yoshi 
Fuh, fuh, zbudu. Yoshi, fuh. And then my adu, syllable die. Great Yoshi, fuh. Great, great medicine, Buddha. And so this is what they actually sing. And they sing this over and over again while they're focusing their minds not on the name, but on the good qualities of the best doctor that you could possibly imagine. So here then, the, um, the, the, the name of the medicine Buddha. Oh, let's go back there. Let's just hear a little more of that. This is the song before. They're just coming to the end of this. We'll know that it's the end when that big bell rings. Oh, there it is. And now they start the Yoshifurai. Yoshifurai. Remember I said you have to count to three to be in this course? Well, and then I had you count to four. Well, today I'm going to really challenge you and ask if you can count to five. Because that's what these guys are doing as they sing. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, can you move your hands? Four, five. One, a couple of people can move their hands. Good, I'm glad we're not all paraplegic because most of you seem to need a medicine doctor and it would help if you could do something to get involved in thinking about how nice it would be to have a fully functioning body. Oh yeah, one, two, three, four, five. Well, here's the point of this. There is a lot of music in the world that is organized in groups of two beats. One, two, one, two. One, two, one, two. And there's a lot of music that is organized in groups of three beats. One, two, three. Two, three, one, two, three. Like the first version of Wine Mathis. And there's a lot of music that's organized in one, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Like the other version of Wine Mathis. Those three patterns together, two beats, three beats, or four beats are by far the most popular ways of putting together musical rhythm. All over the world you hear those beat groups. Almost no place uses five beats. Almost no music in the world uses five beats. And so if you happen to hear a piece on the, say, the midterm listening exam, that had one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five beats. You could be 99% sure that it was that beat that you heard on 
Wednesday, October 14th in Music 316. And if you could just remember what that example was, hey, you passed that question on the listening exam. Just a thought. You know, I know some of you are looking for ways that you can miss points on exams. Um, so I, 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 I'm not for the moment going to suggest that you should try to remember, remember anything that would help you. But for those of you who would like to get help, I mean, you know, so say you're, um, uh, you're um, uh, meditating on the um, learning Buddha who represents the perfection of learning and you really want to learn and you really want to pass your exams, etc. or the success Buddha, is there a success Buddha? Um, must be, there's a Buddha for everything. So uh, if you want to do that, you know, then that's one, that's one way that, that, that you could um, get points on the exam. But if you, if, if you want to miss points, you know, that's okay too. I'm not gonna force you. So here's the, the medicine, medicine Buddha chant then. Three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. What could be easier? One, two, three, four, five. You got those instruments there. Tick, 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 tick. There's no doubt at all where the beats are. Oh, and then there's the end of it. And a very short. vocalization, and then the voices drop out, and we just hear the instruments, boom, the deep drum, ding, the little bell, ding, 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 five times on the little bell, and then boom, the drum, one on the little bell. And then the leader, the woman, the head nun, of the group comes in and sings the intro to the next song. And that's a whole different musical world, as I said yesterday. Listen. Oh, that just spins up there. Oh, beautiful. What a nice melody. And if they were going to go on with it here, they don't, they do later. If they were going to go on with it here, it would take off again up into the stratosphere. Just a beautiful, sensuous melody. A melody that you can almost roll yourself, wrap yourself up in and float away on the clouds listening to it. It is so nice, so lovely, and so different from da 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 da
No, then suddenly you break free of all that discipline and you are off on this beautiful contemplative melody. Now, the second one, this is example two, and part A was the medicine Buddha. Part B with this beautiful melody is the three three refuges and it's a song that is performed all over the Buddhist world, every Buddhist country and it's performed in many different languages here it's being performed in Chinese and just like the language is Chinese, so also the musical style is very Chinese with this beautiful, lovely, ornamented melody that takes you up and down through all of the twists and turns of the musical landscape. <clears throat> this melody, the, the three-pitch melody of Medicine Buddha, is from India. And you find these Indian three-pitch melodies used all over the Buddhist world. This one with five pitches, a five-note scale, is from China. And they are very, very different from each other. When Buddhism came, from India into China, it brought some Indian music with it, like the Medicine Buddha song. But Buddhism in China also changed and started to include Chinese elements, including Chinese music, Chinese language, Chinese art, and so forth and so on. And this is a typical kind of thing that happens when two cultures come into contact with each other through religion or anything else, is that some new things get imported from the outside culture and some local things get added to the thing that, that is imported. If it's a religion, you find local elements of religion being added to a religion that comes in. So Christianity spreads in Europe largely um, through the influence of churches in Rome and the Roman Empire and brings the Latin language and um, uh, various kinds, kinds of things that develop in, uh, the in the Roman Empire. They spread to the rest of Europe. But uh, once Christianity spreads into the rest of Europe, then it starts picking up elements from other parts of Europe, other things that weren't there in Roman Christianity, such as, for example, the Christmas tree, for a well-known example. This happens all over the world. So Buddhist music, then, in China consists of Indian music that was brought into China and Chinese music that was added into Buddhism once Buddhism was there in China. By the way, what are the three refuges? 
the three refuges are <clears throat> what Buddhists conceive of as where you go for help to avoid suffering. And the three refuges are um, number one, the Buddha, the enlightened teachers of Buddhism, the Dharma, or the Buddhist teaching that the Buddha or the Buddhas taught to people to help them avoid suffering, and the Sangha, or the community of followers of the Buddhas and their teachings, the community who are dedicated to help suffering beings um, escape from their suffering. And so as part of every daily ceremony everywhere in the Buddhist world, you have a song of three refuges where the, um, the worshipers say, um, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the teachings, I take refuge in the community. And so that's what this song is about. And again, a solo by the instruments. You had drum, bell, drum, bell, 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 drum, quiet drum, loud drum, bell, and a different bell. And then the leader again comes in with an intro to a different song. song. And so it goes on like this, back and forth between vocal passages, these different songs. Um, and instrumental passages. So that part, that song, and then the bells and the drums again playing an instrumental interlude. The instrumental interludes are to give people time to meditate without words. Because it helps to do it both ways. With words to help you understand and without words to let you let it sink in and let yourself feel what it's all about. And so this goes on like this for a bit longer.
So Buddhist music caused, <coughs> excuse me, changes and new developments in Chinese music. Eventually, Buddhist music would even start to influence the music of the Qin and its players, those players who had so strongly resisted Buddhist music at the very beginning because they considered it foreign and anti-family. But besides the music of the Buddhist monasteries and nunneries, there was other music that came in as part of the same international contact that brought Buddhism in the first place. Remember, Buddhism came in the Silk Road, and it came by the ships that were coming up from Southeast Asia to trade in different kinds of trade goods and foods and silk and other sorts of things. And so in that kind of a situation, of course, you have the import of material goods and you also have the import of cultural, um, cultural elements that become a different kind of trade. And I want to just take a look once at part of this whole process by way of a, of, of a Japanese um, TV show. This was a show on the music of the Silk Road by NHK television in Tokyo. And this is Professor Shigeo Kishibe, a very famous Japanese scholar who actually was the first one to teach Music 316 here at the University of Washington back in 1962. He shows us this instrument, a lute, with one, two, three, four, five strings. And that lute has a picture on it in ivory of a barbarian riding on a camel and playing the lute. This was what was coming over the Silk Road, the camels and the barbarians, the non-Chinese wild Westerners with their strange habits, their strange customs, their strange languages, and their strange music. And during the Tang Dynasty in China, in the 7th through the 9th centuries AD, the government made a special effort to import foreign music into China. And they had the world's first government international arts program. They imported instruments like the mouth organ from Southeast Asia. They imported other foreign instruments. They put them together with Chinese instruments in the court. So there's that same lute again, the pipa lute, which came from West Asia into China. There's the emperor listening to the music because the emperor was sponsoring all of this. And the emperor hired foreign musicians. They hired foreign musicians and foreign bands to come in and play their, their, their foreign music at the Chinese imperial court so that you might have a concert of Chinese music one night and Indian music the next night and music from Mongolia or Tibet the next night and so forth and so on. Music from foreign countries that the Chinese had never heard before. Here are three different lutes 
that developed along the Silk Road. And you see how closely related they are. This is the Japanese Biwa. The Japanese Biwa is a close relative of the Chinese Pipa. They're four-stringed lutes, one, two, three, four. They have a body that's shaped kind of like a pear, tuning pegs up here, and wooden frets here that you can stop your fingers against to get different notes on the strings. That came in from West Asia. It moved east from West Asia all the way over into China. It spread from China east into Japan. So it was a very um, popular uh, glo global music import. And it quickly caught fire in China, and many people started playing this instrument. Now, in just a second here, we'll move on to... This is a very old um, example. Here in the middle is the West, West Asian version of this instrument from the Middle East. This one is called Al Oud. And this is where the European name Alut comes from. Al Oud is Arabic. And the instrument you see has eight strings. This is the way that it changed when it finally went to Europe. It has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 strings. Um, and it became the lute in Europe. So this instrument then spread all the way across the Eurasian continent in both directions, east to China and Japan, west to Western Europe. Here are some other instruments that came along. The harps originally came from the Middle East, from West Asia, and they spread just like the lute all the way across to East Asia, all the way to, um, um, uh, to Western Europe. Here are Egyptian harps being played in a um, temple. Or here's a, a Syrian harp being played by a musician. More harps here in this um, relief from an Assyrian temple. This is also from the Middle East, a harp player with a harp. And those harps spread eastward across all the way into China and westward all the way into Europe. The harps disappeared from most of Asia rather early. And so here are harps in Africa, um, harps in the Middle East, and they did spread up into Europe as well. And this kind of harp with this curved neck spread all the way over across into Southeast Asia. And today, the main place where you find that kind of harp is over here in Burma. Oops, that's India. It should be over there in Burma. This is the form that spread into China by the Silk Road and later disappeared. It was found also in Korea and Japan and different kinds of harps found in the Middle East. So all of the trade, all of the business, all of the international connections that, that spread back and forth over the Silk Road led to the internationalization of music in Asia. Asia was not a land of separate cultures, separate ways of life, separate musics, but very early it became 
a land where, uh, 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 an area where music was globalized and where musical instruments and their players and kinds of music that they played spread east and west, and same thing for Europe, all the way into Europe. And, um, uh, and uh, there were musical influences in all places. And today, many of the instruments of the European orchestra and European bands are instruments that originated in Asia and spread westward into Europe. And we'll talk more about that in the course. So here is the Chinese version of this pear-shaped lute, the pipa. And we'll hear ambush from all sides. This is our same master musician who played one, one of their two versions of wine madness. He was here as a um, visiting artist at the University of Washington a number of years ago. And on Friday, we are going to hear a visiting artist who is here at the University of Washington this year. Her name is Bora Ju. She is one of the leading younger generation of performers on the Korean zither Kayagum. And she will be here in this class performing for us on Friday. So we'll see you then.